And looking back on it, I realized, you know, I was really lucky to participate in something which has changed my perspective on the hobby, changed my perspective on how these kind of events should be conducted. And it's it sort of put a lot of things into perspective for me in that way. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with the one and only Ludwig. Oh, no, not him again. Top. How are you doing today, Ludwig? I am indeed here again. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on again. I am excited to talk to you. We're recording this on a Monday. um, So the day after a weekend and we both did an event this past weekend and for this episode we're going to talk about the event that you did which i am very excited to hear about the monty's men event indeed i had the very good fortune to be invited to monty's men along with some of the people uh that i reenact with and then of course a a broad spectrum of other reenactors from all over europe uh, attending this this I suppose you could call it a, a prestigious event. I think it is. I, I feel, you know, very uh, privileged to have been invited and very thankful uh, to have been invited and enjoyed it very much. So I'm looking forward to talking about it in detail to give others a picture of what it was like uh, and what events I think should, in many respects, look like in in these terms. Long-time listeners to the podcast have probably heard about this event before. Um, I know I've discussed Monty's Men on previous episodes, but for people who have no idea what we're talking about, why don't you kind of explain the concept of this event, um, where it takes place, who runs it, and what's it about? In terms of what it is as as an event, it is a a lived experience uh, of, you you imagine um, your sort of campaigner style events, those style events. It is really one of those set in uh, the South, sort of... uh, south of England. The site this time was actually closer to Oxford, but it's set, it's it's in England. It's essentially a, an immersion uh, campaigner event set in England that takes place over the span of several days, uh, and it invites from the Allied side, the British side, it's an open invite to British reenactors to attend and to adopt a certain impression for that weekend. And then on the German side, it's a closed invite organized by a specific team uh, who are responsible for inviting and organizing the German participants. And when you are invited, you uh, sign up to, you know, essentially be chucked in with whoever it is that you might be chucked in with or to fulfill a particular role. So it's uh, it's it's this... Um, multiple day spanning campaigner style event set in England uh, and it, it, it's been running for several years. I believe it was previously run uh, elsewhere as a sort of British only immersion event with no Axis opposition. They, it was then moved to the UK. I think it might take place previously in France and uh, apologies to anybody that knows this better than me but this is just bits that I picked up uh, and it, I think the last one was in 2019 before COVID and I, I remember seeing the pictures of that and thinking it just looked like the most fantastic thing ever uh, and then this year we've we've uh, had the good fortune as I say to be invited to do it again um, and uh, it was it was the most amazing thing in many respects really a different approach to the 
private experience of reenacting that I think a lot of people would find quite interesting. I remember seeing a lot of the pictures from the 2019 event. Um, if I remember right, the all of the Germans at the event were portraying uh, members of a Panzer Grenadier unit who had been issued camouflage smocks. So you had photos of a large number of German troops at the event, all dressed the same way, wearing this kind of event or impression-specific uniform setup. And it was very impressive and, uh, you know, certainly looked real. Um, I assume it was something similar like that for this year, where it was just one impression for everybody? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. I believe 2019 it was uh, Panzer Grenadier Regiment uh, 125. This year we did the Fusilier Battalion 712. Uh, and it involved certain specific items of kit that were relevant to that unit and that we have a lot of evidence to have been used by that unit, including specific uh, orders from the unit's war diary. Uh, not specifically the battalion, but the, the broader sort of division, uh, and also from um, other parts of, of the units as well. So it was, you, you imagine your sort of ordinary German field grey soldier, you, that's what you're looking at with then some additional uh, elements of kit, which, which don't make it unique, but make it slightly more interesting in that respect. You're thinking, you know, a broad use of helmet nets, uh, and then also a very interesting piece of kit, the uh, Gefechtsrucksack, which as I understand it from reading the orders that we'd, we'd seen, uh, effectively the unit was ordered to exchange their larger packs for these smaller, uh, supposedly more mobile Gefechtsrucksack, which were to be used instead. And it's an interesting piece of kit that I've never seen before. It looks very similar to the artillery rucksack, which I imagine a lot more people will have seen, uh, but it effectively is just a small uh, single backpack that goes on your back, connects to your Y-straps, uh, and you can then also roll a, a blanket or a greatcoat onto that. And in any case, these were issued, it appeared widely, to the unit. Uh, and as a consequence of that, that was one part of the kit makeup. Sounds really cool. Another thing I remember from looking at pictures of the 2019 event and knowing some of the faces from social media was that among the participants at the event, um, there were a lot of people who were not from the United Kingdom, there were from there were people from all over Europe. I think uh, was it like that again this time too? It was indeed. Yeah, there were a broad range of different uh, reenactors from different groups. So you had reenactors from uh, Gran Canaria. You had reenactors from Switzerland, from uh, the Netherlands, from Germany, from Scandinavia, uh, probably other places as well. You'll have to forgive me if I've, I've missed any of those out. Uh, our grouper also consisted of uh, there were some lads from Gran Canaria as well and so we had a mix of English and Spanish. Luckily the language barrier wasn't so serious uh, that it created any issues and there was a lot of exchange of um, interesting words, shall I say, between the Spanish and the English comrades and it, it, it was just wonderful to see how quickly people that had never met before uh, necessarily just meshed in with each other completely because the universal thing of course was the German or were the German commands, and people could engage with each other in that way without language then being a barrier. The, those things were understood, and people naturally filtered straight into this form of working together easily because they understood the the sort of underpinning structure, which was the, the history of how 
German soldier operated during the Second World War, how German uh, Gruppe level tactics were conducted. And because people had this, you know, in some cases quite detailed, in other cases just surface level enough to get them by understanding of how this worked, it meant that this language barrier, which might otherwise present problems, didn't. And it was really nice to see. There was also between all of these different people, between all of these different reenactors, wherever they came from, this comradeship which came about in participating in the same event with the same impression. Uh, and none of the sort of usual tropes that I find upset reenacting were present. It was just one large unit or large group of people from all over the place working together with a common goal and producing something that was really, in many respects, fantastic to be a part of. It sounds awesome. Did you get a sense of, you know, how many people that did it at the most recent time that it happened in 2019 were there this time versus how many people were there for the first time? Uh, I think the numbers might have been slightly smaller. And I think a lot of the people were the same. There were some people who were new. Uh, we were certainly, of course, new participants. My uh, group uh, consisted entirely of new participants due to some people having to drop out at the last minute. Uh, but it, it it was very much a case of those people who had attended previously, they were certainly comparing their experience with uh, this year's event in many respects. And I think that there might have been some differences there, but... Uh, it didn't seem to impact the the overall course of the event. I don't think they. I think in some respects they were expecting to have the same thing again, but this was a, a very different experience for them. That's cool. Five years is like a long time in reenacting. I feel like sometimes I think that that's kind of the average length of time that most people seem to spend in the hobby before a lot of people, you know, kind of at or before the five-year mark move away or move on to other things. So um, it's really cool that the event did come back after such a long hiatus. Obviously, um, I just love seeing things come back after COVID. You know, it feels good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's how it should be. I mean, as I say, when we when we were invited, I was I was really really excited to and you know grateful to have that invite. It meant that we would be able to experience something like this, which we hadn't really experienced before. I've got to say, I've I've tried uh, several times to pull together these kind of events together in the UK, and it is very difficult. It's very difficult to attract the necessary numbers of people. It's difficult to find a site. All of these things that we've talked about before. And this event was all of that. And you could tell from the organizers in terms of how they'd put it together, it was an extremely ex stressful experience for them to put the event together, to find a site. And there was something that one of them said which really struck a chord in that essentially just said, you know, it is becoming increasingly difficult to find people, landowners, that are willing to let people run about on their land in Second World War uniforms and shoot guns for the course of a week. And that's true. It's not an easy thing to find now where there is somebody willing to do that. And when you have that connection with somebody that's willing to do that and willing to allow their land to be used like that and willing to allow all of the administrative work that goes into having that occur in the background, contacting the relevant authorities and, if necessary, contacting the, uh, you know, the neighbours, as it were, all of that that goes in, it's a, it's a huge task. And this event had managed it admirably. And it, well, it ultimately resulted in something that uh, gave a really good lived experience of what ordinary frontline life, not just this idea of constant combat, which a lot of 
so-called, as it were, private events encapsulate, which is where you, you arrive at the site and you essentially do nothing but move and shoot for the duration of 48 72 hours you're exhausted completely because all you're doing is moving conducting attacks or defenses and moving around you don't build a position really you just move all the time and this wasn't like that at all this was very much we are defending a HKL we are in position we have four posten in our individual positions on the main front line those are to be built up and continually improved and that's what we did on day one our position was more or less just a shell scraping and before we were ordered to move out of it on day four, we had turned it into something that was essentially a, a straw bunker uh, with firing positions. It was comfortable. It was warm in comparison to the first night where we just slept in the, in the freezing wind chill. And it gave you an idea of if you were actually living in these positions, this is what you would aim to do. You wouldn't just sit about as so many people do. You wouldn't just sit talking. You would sit working on your, you would, you would, you know, actively work on your position. You'd actively work to improve your lot. There's that old phrase. I've seen it in German sources. I, I imagine it exists in every single military in history, but it's the, the, the phrase that uh, any idiot can be uncomfortable. And if you sit and you let yourself, you know, sit in a foxhole covered in mud, and you're cold, and you're tired, and you don't do anything about it, you're all, you won't find yourself enjoying yourself. And we were told that the event is designed to give that experience of, of discomfort, of being unhappy, of being wet, and cold, and tired. And in some respects, it did all of those things. But it also, on the flip side, gave, I think, maybe not necessarily intended, but um, directly resulting um, experience of really enjoying the ordinary lived experience of, of, of being in entrenched and built up positions for long periods of time doing basically nothing other than building up those positions and eating, waiting for food, receiving field post. All of that was happening all at once, you know, and, and that was really what made the event was the constant idea of there might be combat at some point and there is the buildup of combat and combat is always Ultimately, on everybody's minds, because the MG, uh, you know, the MG is sitting in position. The Gewehrschützen are ready. Uh, I'm waiting for the opportunity to identify the enemy, see where they're going to push through, and then if they do take a position, you know, conduct a, an aggressive uh, counterattack. But it doesn't happen. You're waiting, and that, in many respects, is a representation of the the, the ordinary soldier's life. That much of it is sitting around waiting, and boredom, and conducting menial tasks and when reenactors tend to think of private events they tend to think of let's you know uh, loose off a thousand rounds of ammunition and run from one end of a, a set site to the other for the course of that 48 hour period and do nothing but that and this wasn't about that and it took me really until after we'd left to realize that that is a preferable what we had just done was a preferable experience and also that if that had been advertised a bit more clearly, although it was advertised, it was stated in all the trip documentation that this was ultimately the, you know, it's not a running about shooting event. It is very much a lived experience event that was written down. If that had been reiterated, I think people attending might have understood it better for what it was. And looking back on it, I realized, you know, I was really lucky to participate in something which has changed my perspective on the hobby, changed my perspective on how these kind of events should be conducted. And... It's it sort of put a lot of things into perspective for me in that way. That's really cool. Do you think that that might be for some people um, 
disappointing. I mean, everybody, it seems like, it seems like everyone I talk to wants to get something completely different out of reenacting. And what you're describing sounds absolutely fantastic to me. But uh, I know that some reenactors are really oriented towards like uh, trigger time is, is the term that I hear at events where people just want to be blasting away. They want to just, you know, blast a thousand rounds of ammunition. Um, you know, do you think that that style of reenacting maybe is is a challenge for some people was was it a challenge for anyone that you were aware of at the event that you were at yeah it was i think it was a challenge for a lot of people i think they missed the point to uh, a considerable margin and i have to be brutally honest i missed the point as well i i didn't fully understand what we were doing and i was waiting constantly waiting agitated when it, when are we going to get to attack or when are we going to? When are the British going to come and attack our positions, which have been so built up? I mean, we had, we had these straw doors that we built, so that, uh, or I say built, we, they, that we'd arranged so that uh, the position was effectively viewing it from the other side of the field. It just looked like a mound of hay, but you could then quickly move these doors out in order to push the um, rifles and, and the MGs through, and then all of a sudden it was a firing position. And we were waiting to use these and, and, and to put them into action as place. And, and, and the moment took days to come. And as a result of that, people were thinking, well, why have I bought all of this ammunition? Why have I prepared all of this? Uh, what, you know, why have I loaded all of these belts? What am I waiting for? I've, you know, my rifle's been loaded for days. I've done nothing with it. And that was difficult for some people that are used to the, I suppose you could say, not traditional, but the usual form of conducting these kind of events where it is, as I say, non-stop shooting, running, shooting, running do nothing else but that this was a totally different experience and I think for a lot of people that really maybe isn't what they're interested in maybe doesn't do it for them and maybe if we boil it down they wouldn't enjoy being, a, and I know this is sort of a, it seems like an obvious statement but they wouldn't enjoy the soldier's life because so much of it was tedium and administrative work and menial tasks and boredom and sitting around and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they think that they would, you know, um, be this heroic Stahlhelm-wearing, um, Sturmangriffing soldier charging from one victory to another or, you know, doing this and that. But the actual life of the soldier, in many respects, could be described as mundane. And these huge titanic battles that we read about although they are, you know, the significant part of it, they don't represent the general life of the soldier sitting in a in a, a foxhole, being probably quite tired, uh, uncomfortable, and waiting for something to happen. And that was really what the event was. And it took me time to, to grasp that and to fully understand what we'd actually experienced and to put it into perspective with everything else that we've done. And it made a lot of sense afterwards, but I was waiting constantly for the opportunity to attack. And there was a lot of ammunition left over afterwards. And I think a lot of people maybe were a little bit perturbed by that. And I understand why they would be. And I, I agree with them in, in principle. But if it had been different and we had expended all of that ammunition, the experience would have been different. It wouldn't have been the same thing. So it's a difficult thing to, to weigh up. Yeah, I think a case can be made that just continuing the event or doing whatever is necessary until most of the participants have expended all of their ammunition, that's that's not realistic. You know, that's not really how it was. And um, certainly I've been to a number of tactical events that had really lofty goals in terms of 
keeping an immersion going for a long period of time, but then the event ends many hours earlier than it was originally slated to because people are just out of ammo and, and they're out of it and it's kind of over. Um, but I know it's probably different for you guys because um, there's probably, I think, restrictions on possession of blank ammunition, whereas for me uh, and where I live, it's not really so much of a concern that I need to fire all of my ammunition because it doesn't go bad and I can just take it home and use it at the next one. Well, in the UK, there are no, there's no legislation with regards to the storage of blank ammunition. There's nothing that restricts uh, a person from storing blank ammunition. There's no license or specifics required to hold blank ammunition. There's nothing like that at all. I think the biggest challenge really in this sense in dealing with unspent rounds came from our European comrades who had to go home and had to leave their ammo behind and in some cases they had really not fired very much at all they'd fired very little of the ammo that they purchased and you know for some of them that understandably essentially represented money that they had spent for in effect nothing now, a lot of them managed to recoup their losses by uh, selling the, the ammo while they were there. But I think, again, it is this sort of, you are paying for the experience. If you didn't have the ammo, then you would also be anticipating not having that much combat. So the anticipation of the coming battle would be lessened. And that then would impact the actual, the broader experience that you're you're going through. So looking back on it, it makes a lot of sense to encourage, uh, you know, a, a greater stockpiling of ammunition so that the, in the event that, you know, things do go a certain way, you are able to expend ammunition without, as you say, running out before the events really reached its its actual natural end. And conversely, you know, if you're not spending that ammunition, the, the anticipation of the fight is there still. Whereas if you had been told, oh, actually, there won't be this much combat at the event, to only get 200 rounds for your MG, don't worry about it, then you're going to be thinking, well, what am I waiting for? So that was one of the things that, that I noticed specifically about this. It made a lot of sense afterwards, but at the time, I think people were frustrated um, and waiting for something more that never really came. How long was the duration of the event in total? So we, uh, we actually, I traveled down with some friends to stay at a hotel near the site on the Tuesday evening and then on the Wednesday morning uh, we travelled to a sort of pre-site as it were where all of the um, cars were parked and left and everything modern was dispensed with and everybody got into their kit <coughs> we then moved to another site with our truck which was a, a Citroen uh, converted for German use and uh, field kitchen all the other bits they were moved there eventually as well and we set off from a sort of starting position into the fields where we began to build our positions. And that was that was about on the Wednesday, uh, Wednesday afternoon-ish. The event then ran until the Sunday morning. So it was between those times, non-stop. It sounds fantastic. I uh, really relish the opportunity to do any kind of long duration like that where you're sleeping in your uniform for nights in a row, um, living in positions, living in the field. I think that you've really, with each passing day, what you can learn about what it's like to use your equipment, what it's like to live 
in and out of you know your your bread bag and the uniform what you learn grows exponentially each day as the event goes on and so by the fourth day i've got to think you guys were really really immersed in it you know literally physically um having been doing it for days it must have looked and felt extremely real it it did it did in many respects it did and there are certain things you can't cut out you know your your uh, airliners flying over the distant cars there are things that you can't cut out unless you've got a site that is perfectly situated and that of course represents an entirely different challenge but despite that there was a sort of period where i just i just wasn't thinking about real life as it were i was completely in this position of concerned with what was happening with my own men what was happening with myself in terms of the things that I needed to take care of, where my kit was and what sort of state it was in, a state of readiness, what items I had left over uh, from my bread bag by, as you say, day four. And the the basic living necessities of, of being in that position come to the fore. So when is the field kitchen going to bring up the next meal? Will it will it be hot? Will the, Will the meal actually even be hot when it arrives? When will our iron ration be authorized to be eaten, if it will? And uh, how can we improve our position? What can we do to make it even better than it already is? What 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 natural um, materials are available to hand that we can collect to start building it even further? And what can we do just to improve our lot? You're always thinking about these things when you get to that stage because you know that you know you're not you're not thinking about the rest of your life. You're thinking this hole in the ground is my home, and it needs to be as, as comfortable and as, as, as able to um, live in as possible. And all of my kit as well. I, I need to get the, the most out of it and be able to take, take, take the most out of it as well. And that especially applies with food. And anything that you, you had, you just made the most out of. Putting things together just to make them better or making things last longer. Um, things like that. It, it just changes your perspective so much. I totally agree. I mean, I think about the majority of events that I go to, they're a short duration event. I don't have to worry about bringing a razor or shaving in the field because I can just show up to the event clean shaven. And by the time uh, I've got some stubble coming in, it's time to leave. I don't even have to think about washing out my mess kit. I can just eat out of it and then put it away dirty and I'm going to be going home and I can wash it in my sink or throw it in the dishwasher. But when you're out there for days at a time, these things uh, suddenly become concerns. They suddenly become pressing concerns and you need to be um, ready for the realities of field life days in a row. And uh, I just think there's so much that that you can learn about the soldier's experience when your reenactment experience transcends um, like a 36-hour span. Absolutely. And it, it has reinforced for me the need, for the for, from my perspective, for the hobby to be oriented more around these things, to be oriented more around events being longer, their scale being larger, and not being as much as possible interrupted by things that interfere with that experience uh, and ultimately aiming for something different and not being about traditional as it were the usual uh, running about and shooting constantly and and then it's over 
but more about actually living it, the mundaneness of it, the um, the life experience of it, which I find to be much preferable to the way that I've experienced it previously, which is to always be, you know, you're 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 just constantly moving, and it's not at all. If it's a set scenario, I suppose it makes sense, but it isn't the same uh, as as what it is that I'm looking for. Into now, the combat. Don't get me wrong, the actual fighting. The practice of engaging the enemy. These sorts of things are absolutely what I want to be doing. But this idea that it needs to be, um, it, this idea that it needs to be focused around the combat exclusively is, is for me not realistic. Sure. You know, what was the property like where the event took place? Was it a very big area? Was it, um, forested i'm trying to imagine what the scene sort of looked like uh at the place where the event happened it was really only several fields separated by hedgerows a couple of wood blocks uh and sort of flat i say flat but sort of undulating terrain it it wasn't there was nothing particularly significant about it uh it wasn't you know it wasn't necessarily reminiscent of any particular place although you got vibes of different uh places in, in sort of continental Europe that you could compare it to in different theatres but there wasn't anything particularly special about it which also made it fit in quite nicely with the, the ordinariness of just being there and, and, and living there for that time. Were you guys just sort of static and kind of holding position for days or were you running patrols? Were you um, marching around or on the offensive or anything like that? So during the day, it was very much static. During the night, we conducted repeatedly Spätrup to identify what the enemy were up to, exactly where their positions were, uh, to identify if they were sending out patrols. And the practice of conducting the night Spätrup is, in and of itself, its own really enjoyable, really interesting, exciting, uh, sometimes a bit nerve-wracking and sometimes a little bit uh, dangerous, especially when you've got you know you've got weapons um, in that context. Uh, it is one of my favourite things to do, although maybe um, there are different ways to do it. I think after looking back at it after this event, um, but the night spear troop one of the most enjoyable things and sending out. Uh, you know, already tired people to conduct these things. It just adds to the exhaustion, the tiredness, the physical sort of breaking down that you 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 know you you've been on Vakdienst. Uh, now you've got to go on a spear troop or something like that because we jo- we just simply don't have the manpower to accommodate for people to sleep for these great lengths of, t- of time. If you want to sleep, sleep during the day, sleep in your position and wait for something to happen during the night. We need people watching for the enemy's uh, insertion parties and also conducting spade troops to identify the enemy and also, if possible, to get in among them and take prisoners. And we conducted uh, several spade troops over the course of several evenings. On the last evening, I have some pride in saying that uh, men from my group are conducted with their limited numbers uh, across uh, the front line about five hours of, of spade troops over the course of, I think, from about... Um, midnight until four, uh, four or five o'clock in the morning. So, so it, it was it was a, lo- a lot of scouting for the enemy, identifying his positions, potentially running into other patrols that he was conducting, and ultimately getting a better picture of what his intentions were, his positions, uh, and trying to nab a prisoner 
to get more information about him. Ultimately, we never nabbed a prisoner uh, with our Speer troop, and I, I don't think any of the night patrols actually did at any point. But um, it was really all oriented around that. During the day, the patrolling, not so much really static positions, exchanging personnel between the four posts and the rear line, but not much more than that until the end when we conducted uh, a company level attack so with all four grouper and the company troop working together to conduct a, a final attack on the static british positions with a view to uh, destroying the british element or pushing them out of their positions and then pushing into what was ultimately the headquarters sector to bring the event to a close it sounds really cool. Was there any time at all during the event that was um, just off limits for activity that was downtime at night for people to sleep? Or was it really running for 24 hours a day the entire time? It was 24 hours a day the entire time. You could not in any way shirk your responsibility to the broader unit. If you were called up for a specific task, it had to be done. And there was, again, a certain pride in my own grouper that uh, the tasks that we were called upon to do, we were committed to doing them. And it was essentially the same with every other grouper. There was this pulling together for one specific goal, and that was the success of the unit that made it work so well. <clears throat> and for things, as, as I say, like Spätrup and Wachsdienst and so on, people threw themselves into it. It's not a nice thing in any way. And certain priority was given to people that had to drive towards the end of the event because they had long drives ahead. And people admirably volunteered to take on much more than was necessarily due to them because of, you know, they, they, they knew that a certain priority had to be given to people that needed to drive. Or they knew that somebody had done something during the day or at another time of the night that, you know, let's give them a break, something like that. So we'll organize it in that sort of way. And people, as I said, they took that up admirably. But it was a case of, if you were called upon to do something, if you had to stay up, if you had to uh, exchange positions, it had to be done, it, and it was done. There was at one point uh, on one of the evenings, the Oberleutnant organized, or, or ordered it to be organized rather, that the um, two grouper uh, of the Zweitezug um, in their positions on the HKL would swap positions with the two grouper who were stationed on the forepost and or essentially exchanging vaccines um, on the forepost. And so that occurred. That was at about 3 a.m., I think, if I remember rightly, or thereabouts. It was it was in the middle of the night, essentially. And, and that occurred. Troops were woken, equipment was gathered up, and the two grouper that were in their static positions, they moved forwards and began setting up a roster a rotor for uh, the Vaxdienst and a grouper that had been positioned at the f at the forepost and they then swapped back onto the HKL and that it didn't happen entirely seamlessly but it happened and people woke up and they did as they were told and it only works if people do that the moment that somebody says I'm not going to do that I can't be bothered or they refuse to follow the orders that are given to them the entire thing collapses the whole thing stops and this is for me this is the other thing that that undercuts all of it is is people's willingness to practice a kind of obedience in a voluntary way in a hobby that's completely in and of itself voluntary you choose to go and reenact you choose to go and spend all of this money you choose to go away immerse yourself in this hobby but then you get to a position and you're ordered to do something and you say no 
or you say I'm not going to do that because I think uh, you know I don't want to do that or uh, it's it's I think it should be done a different way the moment that you do that you totally wreck the whole thing and I've got to say when that happens it's infuriating it really really ticks me off because there are people who will invest absurd amounts of money into the hobby they will spend such a great deal of time researching things they can be incredibly knowledgeable they can be passionate about the hobby they can care about it and they want to make it better and more immersive more detailed but then the actual fundamental thing that characterizes the german army of the second world war in so many respects of discipline they totally ignore because they have this in a way it's selfish perspective of I'm not going to do that because I want to sleep some more or because I want to, you know, I'm not going to follow your orders because I don't like you or some other other particular thing like this. And we all, you know, we all at a certain point we're tired and we're, we're, you know, when people are tired, they're angry and so on. But in essence, the moment that somebody decides they don't want to do something and they're going to ignore it, the entire event, you might as well have not turned up because that thing which allows everything to work the voluntary, yes, I'm. I'll, I'll follow orders as is required because I'm. I'm imagining I'm. I'm in this position of of being the soldier in this army in this period, and one of the things that's required is an absolute iron discipline and obedience to orders. Well, the moment you throw that out, all of this stuff that you bought, you might as well have just saved your money. You're totally right. I relate to what you're saying so much. It reminds me of an event that I did more than 10 years ago where the people that I was reenacting with and I had decided to run a 24-hour overnight scenario with um, one-hour guard duty shifts. And I remember being woken up, you know, in the middle of the night to get out of the tent, do the guard duty. I did my one hour and was very eager to get back to sleep. Uh, But when I went to go wake up the next guy... Uh, he was like, hell no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Leave me alone. I'm not getting up. I'm sleeping. That's it. And the scenario ended that way. And every time since then that the conversation even pivots around to, well, should we do a true 24-hour thing with people active and shifts through the night? I just remember that moment. And it's almost like, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people say that they want to do it or say that they will do it, but it's kind of hard sometimes to find people who will do it the event that you describe I I think there are so many things about it that would be that would make it very hard for anybody to do an event like that in the reenactment scene that I am in you know there's the 24-hour aspect of it the boredom aspect of it that a lot of people really don't like Um, and then there's also the fact that the event mandates that you do a certain impression meaning people can't do whatever their choice of impression is whatever their unit preference might be Uh, and also with this event specifically the fact that they didn't have american troops from what i understand and they didn't have ss troops and you know world world war ii u.s army and and world war ii ss stuff are like huge sections of the hobby so um i really have to hand it to the event organizers that they were able to find people who were willing to do this at all really it is the people that make any of any of these things and the people that organize it from the german side are just brilliant in everything that they do and it's hard to do this in the uk as it is where you are 
because of the perspectives that so many people have in this hobby that they are not willing to make sacrifices to achieve something bigger than what they have or bigger than themselves. A lot of people know me quite well. They know that my interest is the different uh, and various constellation of Feller and Haller formations that were largely drawn from the SA. And that's my interest. That's my passion. That's what I've, I, you know, I find that um, my area of focus. A lot of people have their areas of focus, whether it's the Waffen SS, Ghost Deutschland, whatever it might be. That's, that's what they're interested in. And that's understandable. Everybody has that. But if people are not willing to put aside that particular interest to build something bigger, if I said to everybody, you have to take off your cuff titles or buy another tunic, whatever. I think everybody has more than enough tunics anyway, so it's not a great deal of a sacrifice. But we'll all do an ordinary here unit together. No cuff titles, no special insignia, no ciphers, nothing like that. It's just an ordinary bog standard. Everybody can participate as long as they get this particular impression. I think there are enough people who are willing to do it as this event displays, but there are probably a, an equal or larger number of people who are, well, if I can't wear my Grossdeutschland cuff title, I'm not going to turn up because you're not letting me do what I want to do. And, well, then you won't attend the event. Simple as that. An event should be oriented around that. And I, this one was. And I think that should be built up further. It should be a case of focus the events on doing something together, putting aside differences, putting aside you know, unit loyalties or unit impressions, whatever it might be, all of these tropes that, that really spoil the hobby in so many respects, and build something bigger that is more representative and more authentic than you will ever achieve, even if you have, you know, 30 guys doing the same um, GD or FHH or Waffen SS impression. Um, you know, it has to be a bigger scale. It has to be able to call in more people, and it has to be able to do that quite simply and as far as I could see an ordinary here unit is the best way to do that in fairness when they did it in 2019 they did it with a particular impression that required some additional uh, specific items of kit and in this case they did it with some preferred items of kit not required but preferred and yet still people will come so I I, I guess it depends on your perspective I think you what you say is absolutely right maybe for where you are and I think for a lot of places too as well if these impressions are not allowed or if these particular things aren't met, if the uh, action or the circumstances of the event don't meet people's attention spans, they probably wouldn't do it and they wouldn't enjoy it. Maybe that's the problem with the hobby is we have a lot of people that think that reenacting should be about how many rounds you can put out of an MG42 and not what it's like to actually live as a soldier. Maybe that's what separates the approach even further. And that's sort of where I'm coming to now reenacting has been a long journey and I am I don't consider myself to be a, a great reenactor or, or anything like that and I, I, I know that uh, there are a lot of people that have a wealth of knowledge that I'll never match and a lot of people have really specialized knowledge and so on and so forth but one thing I do know is that there is something in the hobby that doesn't work uh, and it seems to be that every time we go to events it can be all sorts of different events People come back complaining about the content of the event every time. There's something wrong with it. There's something that doesn't mean up to their standard or they weren't able to do something or they weren't able to do their impression. Whatever it might be, we can find a million different things. And to an extent, that was true this event. I heard a lot of people complaining, whining, crying about, I didn't get to shoot my ammo. I was bored. And, you know, in some ways I could sympathize with their arguments. In other ways, I just think they're completely wrong. I think they missed the point 
really big time in terms of what this was, what it's intended to be, and really what the hobby needs to be, to be immersive, authentic, realistic, as far as it can be. And I, I think we should aim, you know, if, if, if we should aim for this, this kind of thing. And if it was said that we had an event and we could, we could put it out there, an open invite to, to German reenactors, come to the, to come to the UK, come and do this. I think people listening to this podcast would hopefully jump at that opportunity, even if they're told, yeah, by the way, you're going to sit in a hole for five days and you might fire once at a goose. That's going to be your event. I think, I think people would still jump at that for the experience of it, for that, that relief when, you know, you hear the familiar call of the, uh, the, the troops delivering hot coffee or um, food or whatever it might be from the Essenbehalter or the idea that the enemy might attack and the call goes out that we, that, you know, an enemy patrol's been spotted, that there might be something coming and then nothing happens. Or the final call at the end where the decision is taken, the company will attack, everybody is to rally at this spot at 5 a.m. and everybody is tired, they're exhausted, they're nearing the end, but ultimately, underneath all of that, they just want to get at the enemy because they waited so long for it that they're all really waiting to go, ready to go. Everybody is, despite their exhaustion, despite how tired, how hungry, how, you know, waiting for that moment of not being cold and maybe a bit wet and maybe a bit dirty, they're, they're ready to go. They're still highly motivated. They're still, they just want to get at the enemy. And at that point, it wasn't even about expending ammunition. It wasn't even about just shooting rounds to not have them anymore or not have to take them home or whatever it might be. At that point, it was a genuine case of people had waited so long. The anticipation had been built up to such a point that people really, really just wanted to get stuck into it. And when the call came for Sturmangriff, people were charging through with, you know, it, it would be, it would be if, you know, if, if you were, um, if you saw that and you'd never seen anything like it before, you would think it was real because of the spirit of the men involved, even though, you know, they were exhausted and debilitated by that point. And that, that for me made it, you know, that, that is, that is what I think it should be. Sounds like an absolutely fantastic experience. I would love to do something like that. I hope I get a chance to someday. And I'm glad for you that you had the opportunity to do it. Well, I, I, as I say, I, I think, uh, I think it's the way we need to head with it. And if I ever got the opportunity to invite you, Chris, or anybody like, you know, anybody with a similar sort of mindset, if I had that opportunity, um, I would take it. I, you know, I, w- I would love to extend an invite. And, and I, I want myself to be able to build events like this. It's an enormous uphill battle. Wherever in the world you are, you're building events like this. It, it represents a huge challenge. And I, I, I tip my hat to, tip my hat off to anybody that is working to build these kind of events wherever they are because it is so much work uh and it doesn't help when you have you know idiots like me that can't follow the rules or you know make mistakes or um whatever it be you know if you if you build these events and i'd like to build them it's 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 a it's a real achievement to be able to do it and you know i don't see why it couldn't be extended out to as many people as were willing to participate if they were willing to participate at that level with that understanding of what it is intended to be. Do you think they'll have the event again? I hope so. I hope so. It, 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 as I say, it represents such an enormous amount of work and time in order for it to be done that 
event organizers, I think they they become tired and um, they probably get tired of dealing with people who come to the events because, like I say, they, you know, uh, they can't always count on them. They can't always, uh, you know, expect them to understand what the point of it is or they can't, you know, expect to always be able to readily prepare a site or anything else. So events like this, they don't last forever. They eventually come to an end. Hopefully they're picked up by a, a successor organizer. So I'd hope to see this again. I'd love to see this again. Um, but I, I know events of a sim, well, not a similar nature at all, really, but of a, a similar scale in terms of the um, time frame that have run for 10 years. And then finally, the, the chap that organized it said, right, I've had enough now. I'm not going to do it anymore. And that's it. Nobody has taken up the mantle. And that's the end of it. And sometimes that can happen. But sometimes, equally, unfortunately, there's somebody that's willing to take up the responsibility for it and keep it going and move it forwards. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But if there was another one and I was invited, I would be, uh, I would be ready and raring to go. So essentially my, um, my insight into smoking and reenacting is the fact that I'm probably the quintessential I took up smoking uh, because of reenacting. So the Hungarian helmet is a Stahlhelm. It's, it's basically the German M35, but it's painted green. It has a bracket on the back and the rivets are different. So they think, they look at us, they're like, you don't look like Germans, but you have German helmet. Like we can fake close combat and shooting at each other, but like the, the pure horror, of, it's never comprehensible unless you've lived it. The Reenactor's Corner, bringing history to life. So as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, I also went to an event this past weekend. It was basically the, the polar opposite of the event that we have been describing uh, in this episode in almost every way. And uh, Ludwig, I would love to tell you all about the event that I went to. And I think we can do that for this month's uh, Patreon exclusive episode for um, for the people who generously support us via Patreon. So um, if people are interested in hearing us continue the conversation, you can support us on Patreon and for as little as $5 a month, get access to the exclusive episodes, including um, my event story. So um, I guess keep an eye out for that if you're a Patreon supporter. Ludwig, thank you so much for telling me about that event. It sounds so fun and uh I could probably talk to you about it for another hour, but we are we are kind of out of time on this one. So uh, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about your uh, your experience at this event, of what you've described. Uh, it sounded pretty interesting. It's going to be interesting. Already. It's a fun one. All right. Uh, so to Ludwig and everybody out there, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast, so why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air, and you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactors Corner. <laughs>